The cost of loving my neighbor. We've been going through the parable of the Good Samaritan over the last couple of weeks. And there have been two questions, and this is in, found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. There's been two questions that we've asked, and I believe the text has answered for us. The first question that was asked in the text was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And I think that the, uh, the answer in the text is that you can't do it. Okay, now that was a long explanation, and we talked about that two weeks ago, uh, about what, uh, what it takes and what must I do to inherit eternal life. And the, the answer is that what it takes is so impossible for you, you are never going to be able to accomplish it. Okay, you've got to love God perfectly every single day. Okay, you've got to love other people as yourself perfectly all the time. All right, it's just impossible for us to do. And so the answer the, that, we, that we looked at when it says, what must I do to in, inherit eternal life? The answer is nothing. The answer is nothing. You can't do enough. You can't pay enough. You can't do enough good deeds. There's nothing you can do. Jesus alone was able to fulfill the law. Jesus alone was able to do it perfectly, to love God perfectly, to love others perfectly. In fact, he gave of himself and laid down his life for others. That's how he showed love for his neighbor, uh, by laying down his life for people who were even enemies of his. And so we ask, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And there's nothing. Jesus alone was able to inherit eternal life, and he offers that inheritance to you by faith if you trust in him. But then the second question we asked was the question, well, then who is my neighbor? Because if I'm supposed to love God perfectly and love my neighbor perfectly as myself, then who is my neighbor? And the answer that was given was of a, uh, a person. Um, the, the story is told, the parable of the Good Samaritan that we read about here in, in the text. The, the story is told that shows us that our neighbor is really anyone and everyone. It, it, irrespective of uh, their social status in the world or their uh, gender or their skin color or their ethnicity, uh, how much money they make, what level of education they've attained in life. It, it doesn't matter. It's really anyone or everyone. In fact, the way I put it last week was that who is my neighbor? It's any human in need that God has specifically given you the opportunity to selflessly love and serve. See, your neighbor could be someone you know, but your neighbor could also be a complete stranger. Your neighbor could be someone living in the home next door, or your neighbor could be a homeless person. Your neighbor could be um, someone who is a U.S. citizen, or your neighbor could be an immigrant child. Your neighbor could be someone who believes in your morals and your scriptural convictions, or it could be someone who is LGBT activist. See, your neighbor is anyone and everyone that God puts in your path to show love to and to show mercy to and to bless and to help and to provide for. 
And so let's read this text because I want us to go into, if now we've answered some of these questions, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's nothing you can do. You can't do it. And so only Jesus has done it. Place your faith in him. And then the question, who is my neighbor? It's really anyone and everyone in need that God has put in your path and has given you the opportunity to help. And so now we look at the text and what we want to see now is, what is the cost? What is it going to take for me to love my neighbor? What is it going to take for me to love my neighbor? Look at Luke chapter 10, verse 25 and following. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He asked him. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The one who showed mercy on him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. As we look at the text for the third week in a row, I want us to uh, approach the text thinking now that we understand that primarily this text is about the gospel. It's about our need for a savior. It's the reality that we can't obey the law. Only Jesus did, and therefore we must place our trust and our faith in him. And we've explored that. We've talked about that. We know that that is the primary purpose of Jesus telling the expert in the law this story. But as we look at it, and as we look at the command that Jesus says to go and do the same, he tells the expert in the law, okay, who is your neighbor? It's this good Samaritan. It's this Samaritan who, was, who showed mercy to the man. And Jesus says, go and do the same. The gospel doesn't give us a free pass from not ever doing good deeds. Okay? Good deeds don't save us. But just looking at this text, and by the way, in my research of, of this text, I listened to a number of sermons. And some of those sermons, there are people who say, look, this is about the gospel. This is about our need for a savior. Um, and, and therefore, we, uh, we can't love the way the Good Samaritan loved. Uh, we can't do it. 
And so they take it as strictly being about the gospel, which it is about the gospel. In fact, I would say that's the main reason this story is given, is to tell us our need for a Savior. But we don't look at this text and go, oh, okay, so the way the Good Samaritan loved is telling us that we can't love like that perfectly all the time. Therefore, we throw up our hands in the air and say, oh, well, we need Jesus. He did it for us. We trust in his work, and so now I can just go off and live my life. I'll go to church. You know, I'll uh, enjoy myself. But I don't really have any obligation to the world. I don't have to do any good deeds. No. Paul was clear in Ephesians 2 that we have been saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that we can't boast in them, but that we are the workmanship of God, created in Christ Jesus, uh, to do good works that he prepared beforehand for us to do. So there, there are good deeds. In, in fact, the law, what Jesus is pointing out is that the law tells you that you should love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself completely, perfectly, every single time. That's the law. And you can't do that, but the moral impulse, the desire in our hearts to help people is a, nat a natural outflow of the gospel. So I've heard preachers preach this text and say, this is about the gospel, and it is, but they never get around to saying that there's any sense of, of responsibility for us as Christians to then go and do the same, to actually live out our faith. That yes, we have been given and shown such great mercy. And so as Jesus says in Luke 6, then, then you show mercy. You be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. See, we prove to be children of God when we act like God. And if God has a heart and a concern for justice and compassion and mercy and all of these uh, you know, good things being done for our neighbor, if God has that concern... For the downtrodden, and the poor, and the immigrant, and, and the widow, and the orphan. If God has that concern, then you and I have that concern as well. And so that's what we talked about last week, is that we need to actually understand who is my neighbor. Because we do need to go and do the same. We do need to go and, and approach this. Not just as a gospel text, which it is, but also the implications of the gospel being lived out through us is that we are to go and do the same. And we, we go and do the same in the power of God, the strength of God, in, in the power of the cross, um, not in our own power. And not, and not to earn favor with God, because we already have favor with God by grace. And we're not trying to earn favor with God by doing good deeds. We're doing good deeds because it's who we are. We, fit, we bear the family resemblance. And so we go and do the same. And so as we consider those two parts of this text, and by the way, the other way that people take this is they take it as just like just the kindness aspect. The good Samaritan was kind. We should go and be kind. They completely miss the significance of the story, which is the gospel, and they just look at being a good Samaritan. 
In fact, that's what we know Good Samaritans as now, is, is someone who does a good deed. We call them even in the media, they call them Good Samaritans. Everybody knows what a Good Samaritan is because it has to do with being kind. And so some pastors and some Christians have exclusively looked at this story about being more kind. Others have looked at it exclusively as being, no, it's just about the gospel. And what the text is making clear and what Jesus, if, if we look at Jesus' life, we see that it's really about both. Of course it's primarily and mainly about the gospel. But then how do we live out the gospel once we've been saved? And as we consider that question, we need to think, we need to count the cost. We need to recognize that there is a cost involved to living like this. See, living a gospel, you know, believing in the gospel is important, but living out the gospel is also important. And you can't truly believe the gospel without living out the gospel as well. We need to count the cost. We need to understand what will it cost to follow Jesus. And we need to ask a follow-up question, maybe just in our own hearts, is have I counted the cost? Have I counted the cost? Have I truly considered what it will cost me to truly follow Jesus um, day in and day out. So as we look at this text, I want you to see that there are a few challenges that we're going to face. There's some costs involved. There are some, uh, there, there's some resistance that we're going to face. And I want to mention that there's, there's basically three um, dangers. There's three uh Obstacles that we're going to confront as we live this way. And the first one is that there may be dangerous risks to loving my neighbor. If I'm going to really love my neighbor the way Jesus loved me and, and, and came and left his home in heaven and came down and, and, and dwelt among us and then ultimately li uh, gave up his life for us, if I'm going to live... Uh, if I'm going to love my neighbor in such a sacrificial way as that, what is it going to cost? Well, we, we see here that there are dangerous risks. Now, in the story of the Good Samaritan, and keep in mind, this is a parable. So I know that a lot of people have, the other um, problem that people approach this text with is that they'll start to over-spiritualize. Like, why didn't the priest stop? And then here's like three or four reasons why the priest didn't stop. Why didn't the Levite stop? And here's three or four reasons why the Levite... We don't know. These are made-up characters that Jesus made up. Okay? Of course, it had truth and reality, but the Samaritan is a made-up person. There actually wasn't a good Samaritan that did this. This is a parable. All right? Jesus is using this as a teaching tool. So this is not a true story, though Jesus uses it as a teaching illustration. But as we look at it, we do know that Jesus was using real circumstances, real people, uh, to represent this story. So there were Samaritans. Samaritans and Jews didn't get along. They hated each other. They were of kind of a different ethnic 
makeup. Uh, they had a different religious viewpoint. And, and so they didn't get along at all. They hated each other. They would avoid each other. And so Jesus is using um, common, uh, kind of a common understanding of the people and the places and the environment and everything that was going on around to convey a point. And one of the things that Jesus mentions, the details that Jesus makes up and Jesus puts into the story, is that this man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, the people of that day would have known that this was one of the most treacherous stretches of road that anyone could travel in that day and age. It was, first of all, a long and winding path, and um, uh, it had a sheer precipice on either, you know, sometimes on one side, sometimes on the other. And so it was a very dangerous area. There were lots of caves and, and dwellings along the way, and it was known to be a place where robbers would come out and, and rob people and even hurt people. So Jesus is making up a story, but he's basing it in reality. He's actually saying there was this man who was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and everybody would have automatically would have assumed, uh-oh, all right? Like that's, that's what they would have thought. So they're going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and I want you to see there in the text the dangerous risk that the Good Samaritan faced when loving his neighbor, um, so that we can kind of understand the dangerous risks involved in us loving our neighbor. So we see there that a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. That would not have surprised anyone when Jesus told the story. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. So that's the dangerous circumstance that happened. Now, a priest comes by, and a lot of times we speculate, why did the priest pass by on the other side? Okay, I, I mean, we could, we could run that mental trail, and, and we could come up with some legitimate reasons why a priest might pass by on the other side. Some people say, you know, he wouldn't have wanted to get his hands bloody because that would have made him unclean. He would have had to go to the the temple and he would have had to wash and have a ceremonial thing. He'd be out of commission for a week because of it. Oh, okay, yes, that is that is true. That is possibly why he passed by. But the fact that Jesus mentioned it was Jerusalem to Jericho, it's possibly because it was dangerous. <laughs> you know, um, the Levite passes by on the other side. Why would a priest and Levite pass by on the other side? Possibly because it was dangerous. This Samaritan However, on his journey, came up to him, and when he saw the man, verse 33, it says he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds. So this man is on this dangerous journey, and he's a foreigner. He's, uh, he's just passing through. He's not welcome in this country. Uh, if, if a Jew is going to get robbed on the journey from Jerusalem to Jericho, what do you think they're going to do to a Samaritan? Right? So for this Samaritan to come along, and this is a known, treacherous, dangerous stretch of road, and for the Samaritan to come along and get off his donkey and come beside this man who is beaten up and half dead and bloody, and to reach down and help him up and actually spend time. I mean, he doesn't know if these robbers are nearby waiting for someone to come along. I've always been told, like, don't stop for someone 
who's, who's stranded on the side of the road because of this instance that happened one time when, way back when, or I heard about this thing, you know, where, where they were just doing that as a decoy so they could come and, come and jump you. I, I mean, maybe that's true. Maybe that would happen. But sometimes we're afraid to help someone because of the dangerous risk that is involved. Um, so so I, I think this Samaritan, we've got to understand the risk that the Samaritan was willing to take by getting off of his donkey and to getting down into the ditch and, 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 and spending that time. I mean, this must have taken a little bit of time for him to... Uh, to, to bandage the wounds and to uh, get him up and, and revived enough so that he can get up on the donkey. This was a dangerous risk. And, and not only that, but he, he, he goes on and um, they, yeah, so he went over to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. That's also a dangerous risk. I mean, going into this Jewish inn in, in Jewish territory in Israel and um, being a Samaritan, uh, coming into this inn and, and, and asking the, the innkeeper to, to take care of him, that I'll pay you back later. That, that's, how often is that going to go over? Um, so this was a dangerous risk that, that the good Samaritan took. And I, I want us to understand there may be dangerous risks to loving our neighbors. There, there might be times where there is that person stranded. And, and maybe you use wisdom, you use common sense. There's a time where you need to get home. You've got your kids with you. Maybe that's not the time for you to help in that particular circumstance. But I'm just saying that, that what we need to do is to be willing to help even if it's dangerous, even if it's a risk. Even if it's going to put us out. Even if it's an unknown. I don't know if you've ever traveled overseas. Um, I've been to a few different places on short-term mission projects where, you know, that was not the safest country for us to enter. And it wasn't the safest things for us to be doing to bring the gospel to people who hadn't yet heard. Um, and I, I remember uh, leading a trip to uh, to Delhi, India. And the missionary, or the pastor that we were working with was from South India, and he had become a missionary to North India because South India was a little bit more uh, Christianized, I guess you could say, than Northern India. Northern India is pretty hostile to, uh, to Christianity and, and really to any other religions. Um, and so we were going into North India, where Delhi is, and... Um, so before we brought the students, we were bringing teenagers and college students on a, a trip um, to do vaca uh, vacation Bible schools and different projects. Before we did that, a friend of mine and I who were leading the trip, we went in advance. And uh, we met with the pastor. We kind of lined up the logistics of the trip and spent some time uh, getting a lay of the land and understanding our situation. And the pastor... Um, he, uh, he told us that he had already been threatened to within an inch of his life that if he hosts this group from America, if, if he brings in these workers to come and, and do Bible clubs, 
then they would kill him and they would tear down his orphanage and his church and the seminary that he had started. They would burn it down. Um, so here is a man, and you know, uh, I remember following him through the streets of Delhi. We were in a different car, and he was driving his car, and I remember seeing the bumper sticker that said, you know, Jesus loves you. And I was thinking, you know, in America, that means almost nothing. Like, to have a bumper sticker on your car, that costs you almost nothing. But for him to have that bumper sticker on his car in Delhi, India, was a statement. Like, this was in the midst of you know, severe hatred against Christianity that he would be willing to put that. And I remember following him, um, you know, behind him and seeing that and just being, wow, that, that is faith. That is uh, risk. You know, that's a risky thing for him to put something like that on his car. But thankfully, uh, we, we went through the, the, the whole week with our students and we had a wonderful time. We had Hundreds of children coming to the the, the Bible club each day, um, and the only instance of sort of anger or animosity towards us was one day when we were getting in the bus. That they pulled the bus right in front of the door so that that would shield our teenagers and our group from from anything going on outside. They would pull the the bus up, and and we would get in right out of the door of the church. And some people threw rocks at the at the bus and so it was kind of a culture shock for our students but knowing what they had threatened him with we were thanking the Lord that that's all that uh, you know transpired but the point is that whether you go across to India or whether you go across the street your your neighbor might hate your beliefs your neighbor might hate Christianity um, I remember serving in Queens and a friend of mine who's from Nepal uh, he has an outreach to Nepali people in Queens. There's a large population of people from Nepal who have gone there. And so he is a church planter and is, is reaching his own people there in Queens. And one day we got word um, that he was in the hospital. Uh, and so we learned more in the next uh, few hours and days that basically he had been out on the street in front of their church with a wooden cross and he was inviting people as sort of an evangelistic outreach. He was inviting people to come by and nail their like write down maybe sins or, or struggles or whatever and nail them to the cross. And, and then he would share the gospel with these people. This is in Queens. This is in the United States of America. Okay. And so he's standing there on the street corner in front of his own you know, church plant and is reaching out and showing evangelism and, and declaring the gospel to people. And one man, a U.S. citizen, um, got angry with him and picked up the cross and began beating my friend over the head with his own cross. And crushed his face, crushed part of his skull. He had to go to the hospital. They were able to do some reconstructive surgery. He's, he's fine now, and he continues to share the gospel on that street corner, okay? So praise God for that. But but there are dangerous risks to loving your neighbor. It, it can be dangerous. And the reason why it's not risky for many of us is because we don't love our neighbor. You're not going to get beat over the head if you just go inside your house and, and relax. 
Okay? That you can avoid the risk by doing nothing. But there may be dangerous risks involved in loving your neighbor. There may also be damaged <laughs> reputations when it comes to loving your neighbor. Your reputation with your family or with your colleagues at work. There may be times when they look down on you or they reject you or they even uh, you know, curse you. See, not everyone is going to understand our faith and our practice, our faith and our works. They're, they're not going to understand why we do the things that we do. They're not going to understand uh, what motivates us. But it is not our job to worry about what other people are thinking of us. We're not trying to uh, cultivate some sort of a reputation with people. We're simply called to go and do good works. It says in 1 John 3.18, Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. See, the reason why I think he says, let us not love in word and speech, is not that we can't say, I love you, or that God loves you, or, or to say things with our lips. But what, uh, what uh, John here is contrasting is that, you know, don't just say it, do it. You know, it's not just simply saying that God loves you, that God has sent his son Jesus to demonstrate his love for you, to pay the penalty for your sin, and, and to declare you righteous before God. But, but if you're not going to do anything about it, then what good is it? And I think Christians who are trying to do faith and works often get in trouble Especially here in the United States of America, where our political rhetoric is so, uh, so divided um, that you're going to get it from the left and the right. If I share with someone the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that we are sinners and we are in need of a savior, then people on the left are going to throw stones at me. But if I go and tell you that the good Samaritan went and did good deeds and that we are supposed to act mercifully and do justice and walk humbly with our God and that we are to go and do good works and show compassion then the right is going to hammer us liberals you know the gospel in word will make liberals nervous the gospel in deed will make conservatives nervous but we're not called to be apart or aligned perfectly with any particular political party Maybe you are. Maybe you have a certain viewpoint on politics. But that has nothing to do with who you are as a follower of Jesus. And if you being a disciple of Jesus Christ comes into conflict with something the left is saying, or it comes into conflict with something the right is saying, then you need to be faithful to what God is saying. Amen. You know, priests and Levites will talk all about God's laws. All right, priests and Levites will talk all about God's laws. But when migrant children in Mississippi are traumatized for life, they only want to talk about the laws of men. And I think that is religion that is despicable. You know, it's interesting. Why do we even have laws in the United States and in other countries? 
Rabbi Zacharias, who is an apologetics uh, speaker, he says, the reason we have 17,000 pages in our law books is because we cannot follow 10 lines on a tablet made of stone. Okay? So, so here's the reality. We're going to make enemies. All right? We're not going to be perfectly in line with what Democrats or Republicans say. We're not going to be perfectly following what Fox News or CNN says. It's not going to make sense. And if we are perpetually defending the, the actions of our favorite politician, and we're doing that more than we care to share the gospel and the compassion that's found in the pages of Scripture, then we are not following Jesus. Amen. Jesus had one thing to say about the political leader of his day. He said that Herod was a fox. Right? So it wasn't a positive thing, but that's all he had to say. And yet we are so quick to, to throw, uh, throw stones at one viewpoint or another, and what we're supposed to do is to live out our faith and realize that that might damage our reputation. I might have conservative friends who think I'm you know, a left-wing nut job. You know, because I think that we should handle immigration more compassionately. <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to have, you know, people on, uh, you know, on the left who are saying, why do you share the gospel so much? <laughs> so if we're going to have conflict, you know, I think this week in particular has been a mess yeah. in the news. Yeah. I try not to spend too much time on the news, but sometimes there are such big events that happen in our culture that we can't help but notice. You know, we had a mass shooting where the shooter in El Paso drove 600 miles because he was concerned about the Hispanic invasion of America, in his words. And those are words that he got from other political leaders and other viewpoints as well. You know, there's no doubt where he got that language and that idea. And then a couple of days later, immigration officials raided several chicken plants in Mississippi and brought 680 people out, detained them with the purpose of possibly deporting them, didn't say a word about the illegal uh, employment practices of the people who brought them there, but just ripped people from their families and of course, they realized pretty quickly that that was the wrong thing to do. So about 300 of them were almost immediately released because they had little kids at home. I mean, this is not, I mean, this is cruelty. Amen. Okay? This is not a just law. This is not healthy for our country. It's not healthy for anyone, for either party. And for us as Christians to never speak out, see, we've got to take these dangerous risks. And we've got to be willing to love our neighbor, whoever they may be, legal or illegal, immigrant or U.S. citizen, you know, homosexual or heterosexual. Just we need to love our neighbor. That doesn't mean we condone illegalities. We don't condone immoralities. 
but simply loving them. My wife and I have been reading a, a book by Rosario Butterfield. I've, I've known about her for three or four years, but she was, um, she was a lesbian activist and was a professor, a tenured professor at a very respectable institution. And she had a neighbor. And this neighbor was a Christian. And he and his wife would have her over every single week into their home to love her. And over time, Rosaria Butterfield would listen to what they said. And you know what? At first, she would go to her classroom as, as a professor and she would tell her students mockingly, tell them what this, you know, fundamentalist, like, you know, religious uh, Christians next door, what they said the other day, and just mock them. But then over time, because that love was shown year after year after year, the Lord captured her heart and, and came into her life. And she left that uh, lesbian lifestyle and that rejection of, uh, of biblical practices. And she herself became a Christian, a follower of Jesus. She is now married to Kent Butterfield, and they have several children. They homeschool. They love the Lord. They're active in church. He's a pastor, and they open their home almost daily to show hospitality to people who are uh, hated and rejected and estranged. And they bring them into their family and extend love. Um, so there may be damaged reputations, but I think it's worth the risk. Regardless of what our coworkers think of us, regardless of what our, our family members think of us, it's worth putting ourselves out there to stand for justice and mercy and to show compassion the way God showed compassion to us. I think there's also the possibility that there may be a costly expense. So there may be damaged reputations, there may be dangerous risks to loving our neighbor, and there may be costly expenses, like actual financial costs. This might actually hurt your bottom line, might hurt your wallet, in order for us to go and love our neighbor in such a sacrificial way. Look back at the story here. The parable of the Good Samaritan, it shows, it says, back in verse 27, when the expert in the law answered, who is my neighbor? Or, or excuse me, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember his answer? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. We sometimes look at that phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, and we don't really give it a whole lot more thought other than just, okay, we need to love other people. We need to see the example of the Good Samaritan. But what we don't see there is the idea of what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? See, I think I, I, I like what um, Jonathan Edwards says about this is, you know, it's not that... Um, it's not that we just do a good deed for a neighbor here and there, or we just happen to see something, a problem, and we, we open our wallet, we open our, you know, our home, and, and we meet that need, and then we go on about our business. Now, how do you love yourself? If you have a need, do you wait until you're kicked out on the street before you start addressing your problem? 
Do you wait until you're dying of hunger before you give yourself some food? You know, do we wait until it's the last minute before we actually care for ourselves? No, we don't wait until it's the extreme. We do it every day. We're caring for ourselves because we love ourselves. We need food. We need shelter. We, we take care of ourselves. And so we don't wait until the last minute. And so a lot of times we say, well, you know, I don't, I don't think I can help because I don't have enough money. Uh, I love, again, going back to what John Edward, Jonathan Edwards says. He says, you know, I can't help because I have nothing to spare. Uh, and he says, I can't help anyone. You usually mean I can't help anyone without burdening myself or cutting into how I live my life. But remember the text in Galatians where it says bear one another's burdens? If you don't actually share the burden, um, if it doesn't hurt you, if it doesn't burden you a little bit, then are you really bearing anyone else's burdens? He says, we in many cases may, uh, but the rule of the gospel, be obliged to give to others when we can't without suffering ourselves. If our neighbor's difficulties and necessities are much greater than ours, and we see that they are not like to be relieved, we should be willing to suffer with them and to take part of their burden upon ourselves. Or else, how is it that rule fulfilled of bearing one another's burdens? If we are never obliged to relieve others' burdens, but only when we can do it without burdening ourselves, then how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all? Jonathan Edwards. Uh, I love that you know he goes on to say you know it is, it is true that some people don't have uh, you know in, in Edwards' words a natural faculty to manage affairs to advantage. In other words, sometimes we look at a homeless person on the street and we say, well, it's because of their you know they just haven't handled their life well. They they haven't done what they should have done. Um, they're on the street because of their own ignorance, or their their own you know. Uh, stupidity. That's why they're on the street. And so we write them off as, I don't have to care for this person. I don't have to love this neighbor, even though God has put them right in front of me. Because they, they're uh, irresponsible. And so we pass by on the other side. But Edwards says, and he believes, that we should consider the lack of this faculty. In other words, these, these mental you know, time management and and just kind of the common sense things that we do when we go to work and take responsibility for ourselves. He says we need to treat that person um, almost like being born with impaired eyesight, he gives the example. He says such a faculty, in other words, the mental faculty to be able to care for yourself and take responsibility. He says such a faculty is a gift that God bestows on some and not on others. And it is not owing to themselves. This is as reasonable as that to he whom providence has imparted sight should be willing to help him to whom sight is denied, and that he should have the benefit of the sight of others who has none of his own. So in other words, we care for people not because they you know, are irresponsible and lazy, but because maybe they don't have the mental faculty, the mental prowess to be able to care for themselves. We help them regardless. We see in the story of the Good Samaritan all of the costs involved of loving your neighbor as yourself. It says that the Good Samaritan on his journey came up to him when he saw the man he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. That probably wasn't too expensive, but it was 
something he had on his person that he willingly gave to the man. Uh, verse 34, then he put him on his own animal, which put him elevated in, in relation to him, lifted him up and put him on his own animal. Instead, he walked, showing sort of the, the, the weaker nature, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. In other words, he, he, he took care of him through the night. And the next day, he took out two denarii. Some people have conjectured how much money this is this, and, and how much it costs to be in an inn such as this. And they figured that this is probably about two months room and board at this inn. So for two months, he's being cared for, possibly, if, if we're doing the calculations right. And it says he gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. This, this person is, is opening himself up to fraud, potentially. Uh, what if he comes back and the innkeeper says, well, yeah, he took a turn for the worse. We're going to need you to settle up. You know, you know, he's opening himself up to abuse here, and yet he's willing to put his credit card to open up his, his own tab so that this man could be cared for. This is lavish love for his neighbor. This, this is costly. And I defy you to find any health care, and I would thank you, doctors and nurses who are here, but I defy you to find any health care system any doctor or any nurse or any hospital in all of our country that would care for someone to this level of treatment, to help someone this lavishly. Jesus is saying, no, this is something that the church can do. This is something that Christians can do, that we can open our homes, that we can help people, that we can do good for others in a way that Republicans and Democrats can't. That doctors and nurses doing their best to just take care of the urgent problems and release people to home. No, Christians can come alongside. It is not a small thing that whenever a disaster strikes in the U.S. and around the world, uh, the Southern Baptists, which I have been previously uh, affiliated with, have the third largest disaster relief organization in the U.S. Next to Salvation Army. Uh, and the Red Cross. And the Red Cross asks the Baptists to come alongside them with their food trucks and to supply all of the meals. The Red Cross doesn't prepare any meals. The Baptists prepare the meals. Red Cross gets the credit. Fine. Go do what you will. But it's the food trucks that the Baptists provide that cook all of those meals. Every single disaster that ever shows up on the news media, the Baptists are there to take care of the people. With no credit being asked, although I think some people are starting to realize that they're the third largest disaster relief organization. And the other thing is, and I've done mud outs after Hurricane Katrina, and, and I've done this work before, where when all of the other organizations are gone, when FEMA has left Louisiana, or when FEMA has left you know, New Jersey, and when all of the other disaster relief organizations feel like disaster has been relieved, the Baptists are still there for years. There are Baptists in Puerto Rico now who are still helping because we consider the cost and we're willing to go and do the work when no one else will. 
So it's going, the costs are going to be extreme. And we have to be willing to consider the cost. Now I love what, uh, I, I want to end by saying that, you know, there may be dangerous risks. There's probably going to be damaged reputations. There's going to be costly expenses. But I want you to understand that there will be a spiritual reward. I love the story of George Lyle. He was the first American missionary. He was an African-American named George Lyle, and he had been a slave in Virginia. And when his master became a Christian and freed him, Lyle could have simply sat in this newfound freedom, and we wouldn't have begrudged him at all. But instead, he sold himself back into temporary servitude to board a ship to Jamaica, where he became a missionary to the slaves there. In fact, um, so this is now, you know, we recognize George Lyle as the first missionary from the U.S. And it's because of his selflessness. And I, I read a story about him, and it, it, it said this, if there were ever anyone who might have said, I have a right to be now at ease, to turn the attention back on himself and use his freedom to make something of himself, it was George Lyle. He deserved that. He could have uh, had that. But Lyle realized that hearing the gospel had made him an extremely privileged person. And with the privilege of having heard the gospel came the responsibility to take it to others. So he sold himself back into slavery so that he could be taken to Jamaica and bring the good news of the gospel to the people there. There is a spiritual reward for someone like George Lyle. And there is a spiritual reward, reward, even if it is costly to us, even if it is extreme for us, there will be a spiritual reward. Remember what the first question that the expert in the law asked to begin this whole set, this whole parable? It was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There is eternal life. There is an inheritance for you if you continue to invest in not only sharing the gospel, but showing the gospel through your actions. That there is an eternal reward, that you can't earn it, you can't do anything to get it, but you inherit it when you show yourself to be a follower of Jesus. Robert Murray McShane, um, this is kind of an extended quote, but I want to share this with you. He says, Kind of to, to let us know that, yes, there is a spiritual reward, but there's also a spiritual reckoning. There's a spiritual reckoning that will be done, um, not only to judge those who are lost, but also for our lives as Christians. That how we lived our lives matters to God. Um, and so Robert Murray McShane says this. He says, I fear there are some Christians among you. To whom Christ cannot say, come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. He says, your haughty dwelling, your prideful dwelling arises in the midst of thousands who have scarce a fire to warm themselves at and have but little clothing to keep out the biting frost. And yet you never darken their door. 
You heave a sigh, perhaps at a distance, but you do not visit them. Ah, my dear friends, I am concerned for the poor, but more for you. I know not what Christ will say to you on the great day. You seem to be Christians, and you, yet you care not for his poor. Oh, what a change will pass upon you as you enter the gates of heaven. You will be saved, but that will be all. There will be no abundant entrance for you. And he quotes, he that soweth sparingly shall reap sparingly. And I fear, he says, that there may be many hearing me who may know well that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudging at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its life blood than its money. Oh, my friends, enjoy your money. Make the most of it. Give none of it away. Enjoy it quickly, for I can tell you, you will be beggars throughout interesting because I think Jesus is actually a little more harsh. And I don't mean to end on a sad note here, but Jesus seems to be even a little more pointed and direct in Matthew 25 where it says, the Son of Man when he comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. This is Jesus talking about what he will do. And it says in verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another just as a shepherd, shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he says this, and this seems strange because we believe that Salvation is by faith and not by works. And what Jesus says next might challenge our understanding unless we remember that faith will precede good works. He says this. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison. And you visited me. And then the righteous, the ones who are going to inherit eternal life, they're, they're a little bit clueless here. And they're like, wait a second. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And it's very repetitive here. But when did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I tell you. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will also say to those on the left, see, there's a spiritual reckoning along with a spiritual reward. Then he will also say to those on the left, and by the way, this is not left and right politics, okay? Just to be clear. Then he will also say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you didn't care for me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? Then he will answer them, I tell you, Whatever you did not do 
for one of the least of these. You did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Wait, I thought it was faith alone that saves us. It is. Jesus is describing the good works of a person who is saved. They are the righteous. They're already at the gates. They've already been separated left and right. And the ones who are on the right, yes, of course they did good deeds because it came natural to them. They cared for the least of these. It was obvious. Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. So it's not that you're saved by works, but if you have been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, then you will do good works because God has already prepared them beforehand that you would walk in them. Faith, as James says, without works is dead. And so as we come to the end of our time this, this morning, as we look at this text a third time, we see that there is a great cost to loving our neighbor. We're not, as Christians, we're not necessarily promised a life of luxury. We're not really promised all of this world's goods and pleasures of this life. Instead, we have been sent by our Lord and Savior, who he himself came and left the riches of heaven and did not despise equality, uh, did not regard equality with God as something to be held on to, but he emptied himself and became of no reputation and came in the form of a slave was crucified on the cross. And in the same way, we go out and we show mercy because we have received such great mercy. So don't ever let someone tell you that in the church, you just need to preach the gospel. Enough of this social stuff. Enough of this, you know, uh, compassion stuff. Why are we talking about uh, the rights of the unborn? Why are we talking about immigration? Why are we talking about racism? That, that's not for the church. We're supposed to preach the gospel. <coughs> the reason why we do both is because faith without works is dead. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your justice. We thank you for your uh, compassion and your long-suffering. And we thank you for your kindness. But as Paul says in Romans 2, that your kindness was intended to lead us to repentance. And so we pray now, Lord, that as we go out from this place, that we would treasure the gospel. That we would thank you daily for saving our souls. But Lord, please do not leave us just simply as baby believers who are selfishly just uh, lapping up the milk of the word, but instead, Lord, that we would desperately desire to be like you, to become more like Jesus every day, who healed the sick and, and, and fed the hungry and cared for the children and, and did all the wonderful good things that he did. And so pr we pray, Lord, that you would mobilize us as peacemakers in the world to 
share the love of Jesus and to show the love of Jesus to a lost and hurting and dying world. We pray this in Jesus' name.